If you're watching online right now, yep, I have a red shirt on. You don't have to adjust your monitor. It's probably the last time I'll ever be able to wear it on Sunday morning. Because my wife walked up to me this morning and said, oh, you're wearing a red shirt. You won't have a hard time seeing you on the platform. So I've heard that over and over and over this morning. So, okay. I'm wearing a red shirt. All right. <laughs> I know. I really stand out. That's okay. I want you to focus on God's word, though. So would you take out your Bible and open it up to the book of Romans, please? Romans chapter 6. We're still chewing on this really monumental um, verse, verse 23, and, and I'm going to help you chew on that a little bit more today, but we'll, we'll get back to it next week. We, we just asked this question, who can stop the Lord Almighty? It's kind of a redundant question, right? I've just heard somebody in the front row say, no one, right? No one can stop the Lord Almighty, amen? amen. Okay, um, you guys are really going to need that amen this morning, so let me warm you up a little bit, because you're going to have good reason to say it. So who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. Okay, excellent. Way to be engaged. So let me put this verse on the screen for you. Verse 23 of chapter 6 talks about this God who cannot be stopped because it says this very clearly. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the God that cannot be stopped, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I said to you last week, it is God's mercy that I get the benefit of the relationship with him before I ever understand it. Before it ever makes sense to me, God gives me the benefit of the relationship before it fully makes sense. God, in other words, doesn't wait for my mind to catch up to the reality of what he's doing before he gives me the benefit. Yeah, I need to understand that Jesus died for me. I need to understand that Jesus rose again. But I don't fully understand all of the issues involved with that. I don't fully understand that eternity is waiting for me. I don't fully understand because I've never seen it. You haven't seen it either. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But God gives us the benefit. So we have this promise from him. So let me help you understand and process this. I believe in Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ. So therefore, you have the benefit of that belief meaning you already have eternal life in heaven. It's yours right now. Nothing can take it from you. And although your mind may not have fully caught up to the reality of that, God says it's yours. You possess it. And church, when you seize upon that reality, when you grasp that, no matter what issue you brought in the door with you this morning, no matter what heartache what financial issue, what spiritual issue, what emotional issue, what relational issue you have going on right now. When you seize upon the reality that Jesus has you for eternity, all those other issues fade like a vapor. They just evaporate. Not that they're not still there. They're still very real, but God is so much greater. Nothing can stop him. And he says, I have you. So in response to that, Paul writes things like chapter 6. In response to this reality, he says, God's free gift to you is eternity. Do you understand what's waiting for you? 
So next week, we're going to examine eternity. I can't get into Romans 6.23 today the way I want to. So I want to talk about heaven and eternal life with you next week and what that really means and examine verse 23. But we've got to work through 17 to get there. But here's what we do need to know about verse 23. Here's what's very clear to us. Eternal life that God's giving us, this eternal life is not a reward for services rendered. It's not God paying you back for being a good boy or being a good girl. It's a free gift from God, and it's through Jesus. We'll talk about that more in just a minute, and we'll get to examine that even more next week. So go with me to verse 17, and before we jump into it, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I know there's a lot of things on your mind right now. I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God would focus you. If you're watching online, pray with us right now that God would focus you on this reality. Let's pray together. Father, the potential for distractions are huge, and we willingly acknowledge that, but what we ask in a supernatural way that you help us to push it aside. Push aside whatever thing we carried in here with us to be in the way of a distraction, and focus us on, on, on your word, what you want to communicate. And we ask that you would do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've committed to us that the Spirit is our teacher and our guide. So, Father, we're claiming that and asking for that right now. Guide us in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. So Paul said this in verse 17. He said, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. We looked at that last week just a little bit. And what I said to you is your behavior reveals your attachments. Your behavior, the things that we do throughout the course of the week, it reveals what we're attached to. It, it shows us what we chase after. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a few questions this morning that you just answer internally. What are you chasing after today? What is the thing that's pursuing you the most? What commands the greatest degree of your attention? In other words, what masters you? What has your focus? Paul's complimenting these Romans these Roman Christians, many of them are very new to Jesus. And he says, you guys, you're obedient from the heart. And it's revealing what you're attached to. It shows what you're chasing after. Now, I, I want to be very clear. And what I what think I was clear on last week is that this issue of obedience that we're about to talk about just briefly, this obedience does not produce salvation. Amen? Amen. Okay. Obedience does not produce salvation. You already have it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have salvation right now. So obedience doesn't produce it, and it does not keep your salvation. You already have it through what Jesus has done, and if your performance keeps it, then it's dependent upon you and not upon God. So Jesus spoke to this very issue. I want you to see a verse on the screen from uh, the book of John, and this is Jesus talking. He's talking about this very issue. Those who belong to him and what he gives in response. It says this in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, there's a relationship. I hear them, they know me, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Follow this up. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, he takes it up a notch. As though God could do that, but God takes it up a notch. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Because Scripture says, 
God's got you. God the Father, God the Son, and in Ephesians you read, God the Spirit has you. So I can say things like, wow, when God has you, everything else fades in comparison. So this obedience thing that we're talking about here is not being obedient to the degree that if I'm good enough, maybe God will let me in one day. This obedience comes from the heart, Paul says. It just flows out of a person. It's not a robotic maneuver. It's not something you do just mechanically. It's not forced. This obedience comes from the heart. And Paul's talking about to the teaching in their case, obedient to the form of teaching to which they were committed, meaning what they were delivered over into. Here's just a summary on this. What Paul is emphasizing here is this crucial relationship between righteous living, thing we talked about a lot last week, righteous living and God's truth and how those two come together and produce in you the evidence that you're walking with Jesus. Go with me into verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So this is a really powerful image. You were slaves to sin. You had a master over you. Satan, according to the Bible, is the master of sin and sinful behavior. Scripture says that's who you were, but now you've been enslaved again. And it says right there, you became slaves. You were slaves of sin. Now you're slaves of righteousness. Who did that to you? Who made you a slave of righteousness? Well, God. God made you that way through his Holy Spirit when you professed faith in Jesus to incline you towards himself. He delivered you over into his word, as we talked about last week, and through his Holy Spirit, producing obedience and righteousness in you. So here's the summary of what Paul's saying. You have been set free from sin. Get your amens ready. You've been set free from sin, liberated from Satan, given a new identity, and that new identity is that you're a slave again. But this time, you're a slave to God. What was true for the first century Romans who came to Christ is true for you today. Absolutely true. Sin no longer has dominion and domination over your life. You have been freed from its power. Amen? Okay. There's a way to sum that up. Galatians chapter 5, it says this, Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I bet if you've been in church very long or if you've been a Christian a very long time, you've probably read that before. And maybe you treated it as kind of mundane. What does that really mean? What is he actually saying when he says, I've been set free? So hear this. You are free from every aspect of sin. Two huge aspects. First of all, you're free from the condemnation power of sin, meaning one day you're going to stand in heaven before God. And you will not be condemned for eternity because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers you. Free, free from the condemnation power of sin. It has no power over you for eternity. That means you're no longer destined for eternal destruction, no longer destined for hell because of Jesus. That's huge, right? Yeah, I mean, that's big enough in itself. We could go home right now. I'd be like, okay, I'm good with that. But we're also free from the enslaving power of sin while we're on planet earth. Meaning no longer destined to be entangled in sin. Paul talks about that a lot in the New Testament, but the writer of Hebrews also talks about it. Let me show you an example from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Look with me on the screen. 
Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run. Now, I know enough about the Bible, and many of you do too, to know that God would never say that if it wasn't possible. He would never call us to that standard to say, lay it aside. Lay aside those things that your hands used to dabble in. Lay aside those things that your eyes used to look at. Lay aside those places that you used to walk to with your feet. Lay it aside. Don't let that trip you up anymore. God would never ask you to do that if it wasn't possible for you to do that. So he says, lay it aside, all those sins which so easily entangle us, and let us run. Let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, new hope. Fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, that's why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He could say that because Jesus brings real freedom, real freedom. We're no longer entangled. So scripture follows that up by saying, you don't even need to be trapped in the issues that are bothering you today. Uh, Let me help you with that thought. I said that the things that you carried in the door with you this morning, the heartaches, the relationship issues, the emotional issues, all those things pale in comparison in the face of the one who is so much greater. Paul wrote to individuals who were actually caught up in physical slavery. They found themselves every morning waking up, having to go to a master and saying, Master, what do you want me to do today? They live their life as slaves, and Paul said even to those individuals, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. How do you say that to someone who physically is caught up in slavery? Let me show you the verse from Corinthians. It says this, 1 Corinthians 7, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Verse 22 is the next part of it. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Now, I want you to think about this illustration that Paul's using here. Slavery was and is regarded as the most degrading position any human could ever be given on planet Earth. Think of the worst job you can possibly imagine in the United States right now. Some of you are probably thinking, it's my job, right? You don't like your job. Maybe you think your job is the worst job. I'm telling you, it's not. You're not in slavery. You're not working for free. You might feel like you are, but you're not. You're not in slavery. These individuals to whom Paul says, don't worry about it. Why? Because you are Christ freedmen. You have been freed from sin. Even though slavery was regarded as the most degrading position, and it was rarely even used as an illustration, simply because we just don't even want to go there. We know how brutal it is, but it does make things really clear. And we need clarity on this issue of our walk with Jesus. Are you catching this? Freedom in Jesus is so liberating that even your physical circumstances, even your emotional circumstances, even your relational circumstances, they don't matter in view of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So I can say when you walked in the door this morning, those things that you carried in with you, they fade like a vapor in the face of the one who says, I have you. You are mine. I've got you for eternity. 
There was a guy who was pretty famous in the 1500s by the name of Martin Luther. And if you've never heard of him, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King. Uh, Martin Luther is kind of famous for something called the Reformation, right? So he was looking at this issue in Romans chapter 6, and he said this very thing. Happy are they who, knowing that grace, can live in the world without being of it, who by following Jesus Christ are so assured of their heavenly citizenship that they are truly free to live their lives in this world. People don't talk like that anymore, right? Happy are they who follow the Detroit Tigers, right? Happy are they who go to New Hope Church. But he's using this language, but just catch what he's saying because we don't talk this way. It's hard to catch that, but he's saying this. People who know grace, wow, it's like off the charts joy. You can live in this world even though you're not of this world. You can live in this world and you can carry out what God called you to be because you're truly free Your citizenship is in heaven. So don't take this issue of freedom too lightly. That's absolutely true. Nobody championed the issue of freedom like Paul. I mean, he's all over it when he talks about the gospel. But he does not confuse our freedom, our liberty in Jesus. He doesn't confuse that with license. Let me help you with that thought. When I was a boy, I loved going to my grandpa's house or to my grandfather's cabin. Um, He had a little cabin on the Little Manistee River where we would do trout fishing. And in the evenings, we would watch uh, World War II movies. And these old World War II movies um, were just so much fun with him because he was born in 1910. And my grandfather, he lived through the 1940s. And he could point out the flaws and the errors and the things that we were watching. So he would say, oh, Mark, that's not quite right. Well, that's not quite right in the movie. But occasionally, when we were watching some of the World War II movies, you would see like a a movie about sailors on a ship. And when their ships would pull into port, um, they would be given occasionally liberty passes. It could be a one-day pass or a three-day liberty pass. And and individuals that are in the movies like... um, uh, Frank Sinatra and, and Fred Astaire, and if you don't know who that is, ask somebody older than you. Um, they would be given a three-day pass, and they could go out into the city and do whatever they want as long as they behaved, right? But and then Grandpa would say to me, uh-oh, uh-oh, now this part, Mark, this is true. This is what happens when sailors get a three-day pass. And you would invariably find these guys in the back alley someplace, either in a drunken brawl or chasing a prostitute or, or gambling away their earnings, Paul is talking to us about our liberty that we have, this freedom in Jesus. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card to go out and do whatever we want to fulfill our selfish desires. God did not save you only to watch you wander the back alleys of some moral vacuum. All the time in the midst of it saying, grace, grace, I've got a liberty pass here. I get out of this jail because I got Jesus. I didn't save you just to watch you wander those back alleys. Those who are free in Jesus have become, according to verse 18, slaves of righteousness. Go with me to verse 19. Paul will amplify it a little bit further. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Stop right there. Understand what he's saying is I'm not dressing this up. I'm not making my language ornate. I'm speaking on street level so you can understand what I'm saying. 
So he needs an illustration that will make the issue perfectly clear. Go back into it with me. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification." Your weak flesh, what's he talking about there? Well, it's really evident that Paul's aware that when he sends this letter out to the church in Rome, there's going to be people who are new believers that are reading it, and people who may not yet be a believer in Jesus, and they're not mature in the faith, and they don't yet comprehend spiritual truth. In other words, there's a lack of spiritual discernment. And he says, because of your weak flesh, i got to put this on the street so that you really understand what I'm talking about. Just as you presented your members previously, why is he saying it that way? Well, just as you used to use your hands to do things that offended God, just as you used to use your eyes to look at things you shouldn't look at, or your feet took you to places you shouldn't walk to, Paul's saying, be just as passionate in walking with God as you were in your bondage to sin. So ask yourself this question. Do I, in 2017, do I chase as hard after God as I previously chased after blank? You fill in the blank, whatever that is. Do I chase as hard after God as I used to chase after blank? If you have your Bible open, just let your eyes drift up to verse 13 for a moment. And and if not, just uh, you don't have it open, just trust me on what it says here. Verse 13 says, present yourselves to God. Verse 19 says, present yourselves to righteousness. And he's talking about the same thing. Righteousness or God, he's talking about bringing yourself before God. So something has happened here. See, if you present yourself, it implies that there's been a critical decision made in your life. If you're in this auditorium right now or you're watching online and you identify yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ... A critical decision has been made in your life. You have at some point surrendered yourself and presented yourself before the king. This word present, you'll see it as your only Greek word in your notes this morning, and you also see it up on the screen. It's this word peristeme. And it literally means that it was used in the chambers of the king when someone would come into the throne room and present themselves before the monarch and say, I'm at your service. How do you want to use me? I yield to your greater authority over me. How do we do that? How do we do that in this day and age that we live in? Well, understand, first of all, it is an act of the will. It's not a robotic maneuver. It's not mechanical. It comes from the heart. It's an act of the will. And it's rooted in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you. So therefore, that means it's an intelligent decision. It's an intelligent act of determination to say, I prefer Jesus. I prefer Jesus over those things that my hands used to do. I prefer Jesus over those things that my eyes used to look at. I prefer Jesus over those places that my feet used to walk me into. I prefer Jesus. I yield to him a determination to prefer Jesus. And are you noticing that refusing sin is only half of the issue? 
Refusing sin is only part of it. The other part of it is bringing yourself and saying, I used to be there. I used to be wholeheartedly given over to sin. Now, Paul says in verse 19, you might even want to underline that in your Bible. Now, give yourself wholeheartedly to righteousness. The Bible admonishes us to present our entire body, our physical body to God. Look with me on the screen. You'll see this verse, Romans 12.1. I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So here's my last question for you today. Do the actions of my life reflect the reality of my commitment to God? At some point, I presented myself before God, and I said, I I yield, I'm before you. Do the actions of my day in and day out life reflect the reality of my commitment to God? Let's go into verse 20. This is the last ones we're going to look at today, 20 and 21 actually. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So Paul's saying this, look back on your days before Jesus. Look back to the time pre-Christian. Look back at the things that you used to be involved in when you belonged to sin. This is going to catch a lot of you theologically hard. Paul says, in those days, you were free from righteousness. What? What is he saying? Well, let me explain it this way. I've talked to enough individuals, I know this to be true, uh, individuals who come to Jesus just within the last year or two, who would say, you know, the things that I'm aware of today that I'm convicted about in my walk with Christ, I never really gave them a thought before Jesus. I never really considered those to be unrighteous things that I shouldn't be involved in. Before Jesus, I never considered that. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. It doesn't mean they've never done anything good. That's not what he's saying. People who are not believers do good things. Paul describes his own list of good things that he did. And in Philippians 4, he said, all those things that I did, you might as well just take them and put them in the Captain Kirby and haul them to the landfill because they're worth nothing. They didn't amount to anything. They were just trying to earn God's favor. So it means they're not subject to the dominion of righteousness. In other words, there's no spiritual compulsion in their life. Only a moral compulsion. Here's why. Just put on your thinking caps here. You like theology? Hear this. Righteousness makes no demands of an unsaved person. It can't. It's not possible because they don't possess the ability to meet its requirements and its demands. And so therefore, without the Holy Spirit within them, they're completely powerless to surrender to the demands of righteousness. It's when the Holy Spirit enters you and you have God's Spirit within you, you have an expectation to meet God's righteous standards. Prior to that, you just need Jesus. You need Jesus to bring clarity for that. So Paul advances this thought with another rhetorical question. He says, what was the gain of that? What was the gain of all those things you found yourself involved in previously? Did you gain the whole world at the potential of the risk of your own soul? What significant issue was produced by those things that you're now ashamed of? 
See, our pre-Christian life, life before Jesus, it produces in us things that cause feelings of shame. I had a young woman, a 20-year-old, approach me after the Saturday night service last night who said, Mark, I don't think that God wants us to live in a sense of shame. Well, I absolutely agree. Jesus doesn't want you to live in a sense of shame, but there is something that goes along with being aware of what your previous life was that causes you to pursue righteousness harder. So very, very clearly, we understand that one of the marks of true salvation in our life is a sense of shame of the things that we did prior to life before Jesus. To to not have that is one of the marks of a sin-dominated life. So individuals who behave as though they have no shame whatsoever, they probably need Jesus because Jesus helps us understand we can't chase after those things. So Paul's argument in verse 20 and 21, he's saying, while you were in sin, you're not ashamed of those things at all. But when you came to Jesus, you're completely aware of the evil and what this evil is. There's another guy who lived at the time of Martin Luther, and he's kind of famous too. His name is John Kelvin. Um, He's got a university named after him. Let me show you what he said. Uh, In 1560, as soon as the godly begin to be enlightened by the Spirit of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, they freely acknowledge that the whole of their past life, which they lived without Christ, is worthy of condemnation. So far from trying to excuse it, they are in fact ashamed of themselves. So Paul says in verse 21, the outcome of those things is death. Let me me put just that portion on the screen for you. Just focus on what he's saying, the magnitude of this. For the outcome, verse 21, of those things is death. It's like exclamation point. What, What then? What then, Paul? Well, in utter contrast to verses 20 and 21 stands 22 and 23. In absolute utter contrast to death stands eternal life. It's what Jesus came for. Verse 22 and 23, Jesus taught the inevitable conclusion of a life that's genuinely transformed is eternal life. Jesus actually called it the life to come, the age to come that you don't know yet. So hear this, church. Jesus, if you're a believer in him, saved you for eternity when he died and rose for you. Amen? We get that part? He saved you for eternity when he died and rose for you, but he also saved you for now. For now, this time on planet earth. In the instant that you profess belief in the Holy in in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters your life and begins the transformation. Jesus not only claimed you for eternity, he claims you for now, and the Holy Spirit is instantaneously released into your life and begins the transformation process. In some people, it's just more evident than it is in others. Some are more obedient than others. So here in the conclusion of chapter 6, Paul is simply saying this eternal life thing, it is the inevitable culmination of a life that's genuinely transformed. Now, I can't let you go without just touching for a moment uh, on verse 22 and 23. So just let me go there with you for just a moment. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, 
You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Without, hear this, if you don't remember anything else from this weekend, hear this. Without exception, every single person who trusts in Jesus is freed from sin. You hearing that? Without exception, every person who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ is freed from sin. Obviously, some are more obedient than others. Some are further along in their walk than others. Amen's ready. But all believers are equally saved. All right? I am no more saved than you are. You are no more saved than I am. We are equally saved. We are equally then free from sin. So this freedom that Romans is speaking of is not a long-range objective. Like, if I just get there one day, if I just do this, maybe one day. Now, God says you're free from sin now. Some are more entangled than others. It's not a long-range objective. It's an already accomplished fact. So Paul says in verse 22, you derive your benefit. So you've heard me use the word benefit over the last couple of weeks. I get the benefit before I fully understand it. God doesn't wait for my mind to catch up before he gives me the benefit. So in verse 22, we find we have something because when he uses the word derive, if you derive something, it means you have it now. You hold it now. You possess it. You have derived your benefit. So it is God's mercy that I get the benefit of the relationship before I fully understand it. God is not waiting for my mind to catch up to it before he gives me the benefit. Looking back over verses 15 to 23, you understand very, very quickly that we've been taught by means of contrast. Paul keeps bringing things up like sin and shame, and then he throws out righteousness and sanctification, but he saves the capstone for verse 23. Because up until verse 22, everything has been one common theme, obedience, 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 what do you obey? Are you obeying sin? Are you obeying Jesus? But when he hits verse 23, there's a new common theme that we find. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, contrast, but the free gift of God, it's eternal life. And there's the common theme through Christ Jesus our Lord, eternal life, eternal death, and only one common theme, one bridge to span the gulf between the two, and his name is Jesus. It's the only way. The free gift of God, so eternal life is not a reward for services rendered like, God, I did that. I know you like me now. God says it's not a reward it's my gift for believing in my son. There is no element of pay involved. No matter how minuscule, 
But there is an element of pay with death. Those of you who love studying the Bible, you're going to really chew on this this week. There is an element of pay. Look at that last part, that first part of verse 23, the wages, the paycheck. The paycheck of sin is death. So spiritual death, eternal death, it's earned. It's actually a paycheck for a life identified by rejecting God's provision and not going for what he has provided. But that would be a really dark place to end, right? I want to end with a happy note. And here's the happy note. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good stuff. God redeemed you for eternity, people. Take that out the door with you. Chew on verse 23 this week. We'll examine eternity next week together. Would you pray with me right now? Father, I praise you for these students of your word, these who have set aside time on a Sunday morning to be here and understand you better. But also, Father, I recognize in, in part with that is our desire to know who we are better, to understand who we are in relation to you and who you are in relation to us, and your word makes that so clear. So God, I, I praise you and thank you for opening our eyes. You have done exactly what we've asked for, and you have delivered the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Thank you for guiding us. So God, I ask that these truths that have been implanted in us, don't allow, allow them to easily escape our attention. Take us to the next step. Cause us to respond to what you have shown us. Use it in our life this afternoon and tomorrow. Whatever we do this week, God, keep our feet from walking to places we should not walk to. Keep our eyes from looking at things we should not be looking at. Cause us to press on towards the goal, just like Paul wrote about, to that high calling. Not to be saved, Father, we recognize that, but as a reflection that we are. Praise you in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.